If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. The optimism was something that really surprised me when I was doing my research, because when we think about POWs, we often think about those gates slamming shut behind them and these men facing an endless number of years, not knowing when freedom would come, but that it would be a long time coming. And we particularly think of that mindset with the men who were captured at 1940 in France and Belgium. What I found was completely different. That was Claire Makepeace discussing British prisoners of war. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll hear an interview with the historian Dr Claire Makepeace, whose most recent book, Captives of War, explores the stories of Britons who became prisoners of war in Europe during World War II. She spoke to our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Your book, Captives of War, is concerned with how British prisoners of war in the Second World War in Europe made sense of their wartime imprisonment. Um, And you're concerned with the way in which their captivity was psychologically experienced. So perhaps you could just introduce us to the the accounts that you investigated during the writing of this book and a few of their varied experiences. Absolutely. So my book focuses upon 75 POWs. And um, these men were from all three branches of service, captured at different times of the war. Um, And I chose them because of the personal narratives they had written during captivity, Um, the letters, diaries or logbooks they had kept. And logbooks were sort of akin to scrapbooks that POWs kept in captivity. And I, I wanted to use the sources that gave me the most access to these men's inner and intimate worlds. And so I I came up with this group of 75 POWs and we explore their mindset through their writings um, from capture, how they responded to being captured throughout wartime imprisonment. And because I'm focusing on the emotional dimension of captivity. I look at themes that historians haven't really discussed in great detail before, such as um, POW's relationships with loved ones at home, which comes up time and time again in their letters and uh, diaries. Um, I look also at their relationships with each other, um, the mental disturbances that tore through their minds, um, and how they made sense of being under the power of their enemy at a time of war. You explore in some of the early accounts um, the optimism that fills many of the recordings during early imprisonment, yet you found that that kind of hardened as the war continued. Yes, the optimism 
was something that really surprised me when I was doing my research. Because when we think about POWs, we often think about those gates slamming shut behind them and these men facing an endless number of years, not knowing when freedom would come, but that it would be a long time coming. And we particularly think of that mindset with the men who were captured at 1940 um, in France and Belgium. What I found was completely different. I found the most incredible optimism held by POWs and um, they, they envisaged the war ending in days or weeks or months in the context of the Allies winning the war. And um, one great example is Captain Mansell, who writes in his diary in April 1941 how one of his fellow POWs is by far the greatest pessimist he's ever met because he's putting September 1942 as the end of the war. Um, another POW, Captain Angove, wrote in December 1944, I'm now going to start asking for chocolate and books to be sent from home because I've, I've been expecting that I'd be released before they'd ever arrive but now I'm just going to sort of stay the course and, and see what happens. And, and as you said, it, it's as the war progressed that that optimism subsides, but it really only subsides, ironically, in the final months of the war when the end really is coming. You write about the um, accounts that you found of letters and parcels that uh, POWs received from home. What did you find uh, about the um, connection or the disconnection that this this gave to to the men. I I really loved um, writing on the relationships between POWs and their their sweetheart, their their wives, and their mothers and fathers. Um, it's something that isn't covered really in other history books. It doesn't really feature in films, and it it isn't discussed at all actually in the POW memoirs I've looked at. Um, but loved ones at home were such an important part of the captivity experience. Uh, letters and parcels that arrived into the camps were seen as sort of proxies of those loved ones. As Bombardier Stuart Campbell um, describes his wife letters as breaths of hope and home. Um, or drive a glass, when he opened up the parcel from his mother, he loved it so much because his mother had been the last one to touch those items. So it sort of provided a physical connection. And POWs also in their fantasies would drift back to civvy street. So this idea that POWs sort of were far away in some sort of barbed wire vacuum isn't a correct understanding of their mentality. They would go back to their loved ones, particularly on a Sunday when they could envisage what, what they were doing, because that's the day they would often spend with them. Um, Captain Angove would board a magic carpet from his POW camps in Italy and Germany to go back, fly back and see his mother and sister to escape from the, the confines of his camp. Um, and they were so, these were so important that POWs actually put them on a par to physical food, which is, which is significant for men whose lives were dominated by hunger. Um, so they, they spoke of letters feeding the spirit as, as no food can. In that instance, they're even, even more important than food could be. Um, but there was a, there was a negative to this because having loved ones at home was a great source of support, but also reminded POWs of their 
potential inadequacies. Um, so I talk about in my book about the three P's of masculinity, uh, provider, protector and procreator. And these were all denied to POWs. Uh, they couldn't protect their families. Um, uh, Major Matthews, one of the imprisoned medical officers I, I mentioned earlier, he wrote of how he was humiliated beyond words, that his, his wife and his children were the ones who were now exposed to bombing while he was so far away from the front line that a blackout wasn't even necessary. Um, these men couldn't provide for their family. Instead, their families were providing for them by sending them in parcels. And they often, when they open these parcels, they compare themselves to children at Christmas. So they've reversed that relationship from sort of fatherly provider to filial dependent. And um, they didn't have access to women, so they couldn't fulfill that role of procreator. Um, Lieutenant John Phillips writes about how he was in monastic seclusion um, when he's writing to a lady that he had hoped to eventually marry. You consider how a lot of them react to their capture and you um, find that some of them may experience guilt or kind of emasculation at that point? Yes, that's correct. Two things were stressed really heavily in the diaries I looked at when POWs wrote up about their account of capture. One, they were keen to emphasise their helplessness in battle. Um, and they often did this through animal metaphors. So uh, Lieutenant William Bombus, who was captured in Tunisia, he lost his revolver and he wrote of how he came like a lamb to the Germans. The other thing they stress is that they had no choice. Um, they, they envisaged being wounded, they envisaged being killed, but never envisaged being captured. And um, Corporal Eric, Eric Barrington does this brilliantly in his diary. He has a 16-page account of capture. And on three different occasions, he really emphasizes, I, I thought I might be killed. I thought I, I was prepared to be wounded, but never did it cross my mind I'd be captured. And um, I think both these things illustrate how for POWs, capture was not automatically seen as a dishonorable thing, but it would be dishonorable if it had been sort of a chosen outcome. So as a, as a result, these men really stressed that they just had no other choice than, than capture being the end result of their battle. I think the, the strongest feeling was the feeling about um, being apart from loved ones. Um, that for me, was the the dominant uh, emotion that came through, um, the dominant concern. And actually, one of my conclusions of my book is that these men were civilians first and foremost before they were sort of combatants. Um, they they express in great detail how how they miss their loved ones, how they want to be with them, but also one wonderful thing is how they conceive of the war ending in time for them to attend the next familial event, um, so the next birthday or anniversary. Um, so I, I love the way in which they, they telescope to global war right down to the most intimate of family occasions. So that, that was a really, really strong feeling. Um, in terms of their relationships with each other, 
Um, unsurprising, one comes across very, very close friendships that existed between POWs. And these were beautifully captured often through uh, drawings in the logbooks or even poetry. Um, and, and one comes across how how irritating these men found being in constant company with others. And, um, and, and this is one of the things I loved about the diaries. We think of diaries as recording experience, you know, writing down what happened. But in this instance, diaries could in turn shape the experience. So um, Captain Mansell often used his diary to just vent his frustration with some of his fellow POWs and how irritating he found them. And he'd, he'd you know, get an awful lot off his chest by writing in his diary what he actually thought of these men. And he, he could never say that to their faces. But that in turn shaped the experience of captivity because it made communal living more bearable. Um, in terms of how POWs felt at being sort of subservient to their enemy, interestingly, I, the, the dominant theme that came up was how they felt they were actually the superior to their enemy. Um, there's universal superiority of the British compared to the Italian captors. Um, they, as a nation, the British felt they were far better. And many POWs were very, very insulted um, at the idea that on their on their forms, it was written down that they'd been taken prisoner by the Italians when, when many had been taken prisoner by the Germans and then handed over to the Italians. Um, but in, in relation to the Germans, in, in interesting ways, they, they claim that they're in a better position than their guards or the equal to their guards. And that can be done, that's even done through examples of um, cooperation where they put themselves on a par with their guards when they sort of give their parole um, and, and both the guards and the POWs find that beneficial for the setup of the camp. And you mentioned the hierarchy there of the British putting themselves, you know, as as the top, if you like. But how did the military hierarchy transfer into the camps? That's a good question. And rank didn't come up as much in the sources as I anticipated it would. And that's, I think, primarily because POWs were segregated at the after they'd been captured. And officers were sent in one direction and held in um, camps for officers or compounds specifically for officers. And other ranks were sent to different camps. So the two didn't really witness what the others what the other were being made to do. And, and other ranks, by and large, were made to work very hard for the Third Reich and for their Italian captures, particularly um, in, the, in 1943. Um, officers were protected by the Geneva Convention uh, of 1929 from being made to work. Um, but one place where you can see rank played out is through the Batmaning system. So even though, even though we're at war and we're in POW camps, officers were allowed Batmen. Um, and there were about 10% of the off-flag population in Germany, the camps for officers. 
about 10% were made up of other ranks. And in some cases, um, it's quite clear that that is holding up um, strongly. Um, and, and one example of this is actually uh, at Christmas time when um, a couple of the officers wrote about how they waited on the other ranks at Christmas dinner. And one might think of that as an inversion, but it's actually it was actually a way of shoring up the military hierarchy. Um, but uh, there are other examples where um, officers just bemoan how the other ranks are just doing their own thing. They're getting paid to work for officers, but they're doing none of their duties, and they're having to having to fill in on all the chores, and they're they're not impressed by that. Once they're in the camps, you um, examine how um, an identity almost formed around the men in the camps and you call it a Kriegi identity. Can you tell us a bit about how this was forged, what you mean by that term? Yes, I I was struck, um, particularly reading these logbooks, and these logbooks are utterly beautiful sources. Um, I urge anyone to have a look at them if they're at the Imperial War Museum. The YMCA sent them out to POWs in the last year of the war, and they're encouraged to use them for drawings, uh, for writings, for poetry, all sorts of different things. And some some things were being repeated time and again in these logbooks. So the men often were drawing maps of their camps. They were pasting in the camp money they were handed out. Um, they were, uh, some contained their parole forms and identity uh, papers. And um, others Others record a language um, that arose amongst prisoners of war, this Kriegi language where they have their own particular slang and then they're explaining to the readers um, who will eventually come to look at these logbooks what, what those words and sentences mean. And I felt that these men were sort of forming a particular identity around being prisoners of war, sort of a, a positively um, acknowledging that that particular status and the very particular life that they were living in the camps. What other factors did you find that bonded them? There was, I think, a, f a fear that wives may have been straying at home. This comes up an awful lot in the logbooks. And there are copied out snippets of letters um, written by people at home that are, that are actually quite rude or offensive to POWs and really show a gross misunderstanding of the hardships that these men went through. And these are written up time and again, and often it's the same quote that comes up in logbooks written by men in completely different camps. So, so there seems to be sort of rumours circulating. And they don't just write these up, they uh, often beautifully decorate the page that contains them, which shows that they, they feel strongly about these, these snippets and, and the things that are coming into the camps. And I concluded that they, they illustrate POW's bonding around um, people outside the camps, misunderstanding their life within it. And, and although there was the negative thing of of people at home you know not knowing not knowing the hardships these men went through not appreciating the fact that they didn't they weren't able to even get out of the camps um these men took that and and it became a, a form of therapy to sort of copy those out and and discuss it 
I suppose for many people, um, when they think of prisoners of war in Europe in the Second World War, their first thoughts may go to um, the events depicted in The Great Escape. And you um, consider more, more sort of acts of insubordination or rebellion and how these um, function psychologically for the men who were in these camps. I, I don't look at escapes because I draw upon the diaries and um, letters and logbooks that were written during captivity. And um, POWs couldn't talk about the really illicit activities that were going on in case those diaries were seized, the letters were being censored as they left the camps, so the, the guards would find out about those activities. But what I do do is discuss the, as you say, the smaller acts of insubordination um, and and through these, how POW sort of maintained a self-respect, but also in a way uh, empowered themselves and took hold of things that the Germans or Italians intended to oppress them and actually used them to sort of boost up their confidence or boost up their morale. Um, one example is uh, an, a reprisals episode that happened. So there were nine reprisal episodes that happened um, during the course of the Second World War between Italy, Germany and Britain. And these were sort of tit-for-tat episodes where the Germans claimed that the British were mistreating its prisoners. And as a result, the Germans then withdrew uh, a privilege or a, not necessarily a privilege, but a, a basic living condition in some cases from, from the British POWs. And in this one instance in 1942, some British POWs found themselves with their personal possessions removed, including their razors. And um, uh, Major Castagli was involved in this. And he writes of how in the camp men responded to that by having beard competitions, who could grow the longest beard, who could grow the silkiest one. And through that, they kept the morale high. And it's it's a lovely example. It's not um, a great act of rebellion. It's not a dramatic act of rebellion, but it's a smaller example of the insubordination that these men would um embark on on sort of a more everyday basis you consider we don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments that comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does or that silly thing you said in a meeting maybe it's time to get it all off your chest whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The presence of female impersonators or, or men in drag within the camp, um, what was the reaction within the camps to this? Female impersonators were a common sight in the main POW camps, the uh, those camps that held officers or the sort of the non-working POWs. And they often appeared on stage. Um, and if you see, there are some photos in my book, there are lots of photos out there on the internet, they, and they're dressed, they're incredible. Um, and dressed in stunning outfits, um, very female-like. And in the in the diaries and letters, POWs very strongly stressed how similar these female impersonators, how good they were at impersonating women. Sometimes they even say that they're better at being women than women themselves, and women will learn something off them, which I think was is an interesting um example of the dominance of the gender hierarchy when men are claiming their superiority by being better women than women can be. Um, But aside from that, uh, the, the POWs were also very readily discussing the attractiveness of these women and, um, almost sort of like fancying them as it were um they also talk about these women appearing off stage um so uh they would have their own dressing room um they'd be mobbed by other pow's when they came off stage female impersonators also appeared at camp dances at sewing and tea parties um and and pow's reacted to them in different ways in terms of how they how they represented sort of acceptable heterosexual behaviour and unacceptable homosocial or homoerotic behaviour. So I'll give you an example. Sergeant Major Andrew Hawarden, um, he was absolutely fine with female impersonators dressing up at camp dances, but other camps, in other camps that wasn't acceptable. It was uh, ruled out by authorities. But he took real issue when Angela offered herself up to be kissed by the highest bidder to raise money for the camp welfare fund. But other POWs were absolutely fine with this because it did raise a lot of money. And it struck me that the boundaries between what was acceptable heterosexual behaviour and what was deemed sort of unacceptable um, homoerotic behaviour were not clear cut like they are today, where we have a very clear sort of binary divide and and most people are divided either into heterosexual or homosexual and i concluded that at the time of the second world war these these divides these divides were far more fluid than they are today and how did you find the the men's accounts spoke to their families about this did they mention it or did they um was it very much a, a thing that only happened internally and wasn't spoken of no, it comes up a lot in letters, and that was why I also thought there's a there's a different mentality happening from from today's mentality around sexuality and sexual identity. Uh, they were readily saying in their letters to their wives how how beautiful these women were, and and there was no sort of 
that didn't raise a question, I don't think, in their minds or, or the minds of those at home, that this was sort of questioning their sexuality. That just didn't seem to be an issue like it might be today if a man says how, how attractive another man is when dressed up as a woman. You also explore what has been called barbed wire disease um, or what the men themselves call going round the bend. When I set out to uh, research British prisoners of war, I did not envisage writing an entire chapter on uh, going round the bend or barbed wire disease. Um, but when I started reading the diaries and letters, I I was so struck by how often these men were writing about their concerns about their minds or the minds of their fellow POWs. And it's a, it's a difficult one to get a hold of um, because the none of the POWs in the sample I was looking at were was clinically diagnosed um, with a mental illness. Nevertheless, they felt something very definite was happening to their minds in captivity. Uh, they had a variety of names to describe it. Uh, barbed wire disease was one. Uh, going around the bend was another. And I think that actually gained popularity in POW camps because a lot of POWs write to their loved ones, we, we think we're going round the bend as we say here. So they're sort of explaining this new term that's circulating. Um, others talk about the blues, creaky uh, dulalilus, um, lots of different terms, different symptoms, fits of temper, uh, poor concentration, memory loss. And these will come on in sort of bouts lasting a few days or up to a week. And um, also uh, four imprisoned medical officers actually wrote up their findings on this mental state, this sort of mental uh, disturbances that POWs were going through. And they theorized the different stages of the of the disturbances, concluding that, you know, POWs who were in captivity for, for years, none of them would be... Uh, left um, untouched by by this illness. And so I I've decided I decided it deserved a chapter in its own right. And I also went to Geneva and looked at the records of the International Committee of the Red Cross and the Mixed Medical Commission, which um, were the people who assessed which POWs were allowed to be um, repatriated back to Britain. So 10,000 sick and wounded or protected personnel POWs were repatriated during the course of the war. These mixed medical commissions, when they visited POWs, were also identifying um, a very specific type of mental illness uh, dependent upon the conditions of captivity arising amongst POWs. Was this recognised and what kind of support might have been there when they returned home? What POWs were going through in captivity wasn't particularly well recognised at home. The, the, there was a concern, a great concern within the government of how POWs would readjust to their freedom. But that concern was more prompted by the length of time they had been away from home as opposed to what they had actually gone through in captivity. Um, but the government did actually put on a very, what I think is a very remarkable programme for its time. Um, 
it set up 20 civil resettlement units for army POWs. And the RAF um, also set up four of its own for Air Force POWs. And these were units, residential units, where POWs could stay for up to three months. And they were designed for POWs after they had been demobilized, but before they had entered civilian life. And they were to help POWs readjust to civilian life. They were places where there would be uh, group discussions. Um, They would have access to labor exchanges. Um, They would be waited on in these uh, units by uh, members of the AT Yes, the women's branch of the British Army, um, to get them more used to sort of a mixed community. And um, the evaluation studies done on these units show they were incredibly successful. It was a small evaluation study, so we have to be uh, careful with the results. But it showed that POWs who had attended civil resettlement units were much better adjusted than those who hadn't. But even more significantly, they showed a greater degree of cooperation and flexibility in their relationships than was normal for their civilian counterparts who hadn't been in captivity at all. You also write in the book about your grandfather's own experiences as a prisoner of war. Um, Perhaps you could tell us how that kind of introduced you to this topic. My grandfather was captured on the 12th of June 1940, and he spent five years working on farms in Poland. And my parents, as I was growing up, my parents said that he never talked about the war because it was so awful for him. Um, though he suffered so much. Um, But after my grandmother died, uh, he did open up a little bit more and we'd get more and more snippets. And at that point, I started to encourage him to write a memoir because what he said was so interesting. And one day in autumn 2008, I was encouraging him to write his story. And he turned to me and said, why would I record my story? It would just be one long tale of humiliation. And I had never thought of it in that way. I had been proud of him and admired him for what he had endured and survived. And yet he was ashamed. And I wanted to understand things from his perspective. So I had a look at what had been written on captivity. And I couldn't find anything that really, for me, told me about the emotional experience of being a prisoner of war. Um, There are great books out there that detail the activities that POWs got up to, um, the the hardships, the physical hardships they went through, uh, what they were made to do, uh, what working POWs were made to do by their their German or um, Italian guards. But nothing that really put centre stage that, that emotional experience. And so I realised I had stumbled across a PhD topic and and that became my book. Um, My grandfather doesn't, though, feature in my book um, because he he didn't keep a diary in captivity. He, um, we have, I think, about five of the letters he wrote, the rest got thrown out during a loft clear out. And I was really keen to just use diaries and letters and logbooks written at the time of captivity um, because I wanted to get as close as possible to how POWs felt whilst they were behind barbed wire. That was Claire Makepeace. 
Captives of War is out now, published by Cambridge University Press. And that's about it for today, but please do listen in on Thursday when we'll be exploring the history of crime in London. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.